fill our hearts with your peace. Alleluia. This morning we continue our look at the David cycle in First and Second Samuel. And I take from my text this morning the 13th verse of the 7th chapter of Second Samuel. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. God, our rock and our redeemer. In 2 Samuel 7, our text for today, we see our hero, King David, after he has secured the throne of Israel and after he has built a palace for himself, proposing to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant, which up until that point was housed in a tent not far from David somewhere on Mount Zion. David gets the green light for his temple project, but then Nathan, the court prophet, hears a word from God that David does not actually need to build a temple for the ark. Nathan then prophesies that David's house, that is his line of descendants, will always sit on the throne of Israel and be adopted children of God. It's a beautiful prophecy, one that I think that any king or, frankly, any of us would like to hear. Hey, it's okay for you to spend money on yourself and not on God. Don't worry about building a temple. Save it up for something nice for your kids. Either way... Your children and your children's children will be blessed forever. I've got your kids back. They'll be great. Good message to hear. Given the events of David's rule, however, which we have seen over the past few weeks, include some highly questionable elements. This key text, unsurprisingly, has been the subject of intense debate among scholars. What on earth are we supposed to make of it? It seems kind of important, to put it mildly. So what's all the hubbub about among scholars? What the difference of opinion in all their fancy books? Let's face it, this text is all about political power. And there's plenty of scholars who see it as no more than a propaganda piece. Scholars are nearly unanimous that the final form of 1 and 2 Samuel was written several hundred years after David died. You can imagine the situation, especially in our world, which is so pregnant with propaganda. It's the end of the 7th century B.C. The kingdom of Judah has lots of internal divisions and threats on the border. The king's enemies start a whisper campaign against him. King Josiah has to do something, something that will reinforce his political decisions. So he commissions his close advisor and best scholar to rework the ancient stories of David around a narrative that is in line with his current policies. Josiah, the king, is in the hereditary line of David. That clearly has to be emphasized to to refute any other claimants to the throne. And Josiah's big political program to focus national worship in his capital, in his backyard, in the Jerusalem temple and not elsewhere, has to get divine approval and ancient support. Yet everyone knows, of course, that it was Solomon, not David, who built the temple. 2 Samuel 7 artfully defends David's non-construction of the temple while helping to reaffirm all the purposes that Josiah needs. See why certain scholars see this as nothing more than the ultimate propaganda piece. That's one view 
on 2 Samuel 7 that you'll find quite frequently. It's a cynical perspective, but one that makes total sense. But there's another view. While the vast majority of biblical scholars hold that the historical books of Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings were pulled together in their final form by the author of Deuteronomy, some dispute when it happened, when it was actually written. Did it happen in the late 7th century, when Judah was in a tenuous position and needed the propaganda of passages like 2 Samuel 7 to boost the authority and legitimacy of King Josiah and others? Or did the final form of the passage happen later, like, say, 70 years later? The interpretation of this passage changes significantly if you choose that later date. Because in the later dating of the passage, the leaders of Judah were no longer in Judah. They were in exile in Babylon. You can see the leaders of Jerusalem huddled in their shacks by the rivers of Babylon. There they had to cope with the reality that all was lost. They were trapped in a foreign land with few resources and even less freedom. Gone were the glorious days of the kingship of Judah. Gone was the temple. Gone was the Ark of the Covenant. Left with so little and with so little to look forward to, the great scholars of the exile returned to the text of their faith. Ezekiel was there, prophesying and talking about how Israel got its due for its sins. But tucked away in one of the small buildings was a historian, someone who had great love of his homeland and who knew the histories of his people. He had the scrolls before him, various great texts and testimonies. What was he to do with them? How could he put them in some order, some narrative that made sense of the present situation? Confronted with this historical and spiritual dilemma, the Deuteronomist got to work, huddled over his desk for months on end, while others around him despaired. The Deuteronomist composed one of the most famous works of the ancient world, a composite history that brought together the great events of the past and made worship of Yahweh the center of it. Like Ezekiel, the Deuteronomist blamed the fall of Judah on the turning away of the people from Yahweh. If only they had stuck to the ancient faith, if only they had kept faith in Yahweh, this would not have happened. He laid out his case by going through the events of the past. The goal was to make the Davidic line and its high ideal of worship in Jerusalem the center of his history. And when he came to the pinnacle of David's reign, the moment when he had consolidated his power and before things started to go wrong, he included the words that we have from God in 2 Samuel 7. It had two main components. The first was the insistence that Yahweh's power was not limited to the temple, the very same temple whose destructions the leaders around him lamented daily. It was a theme that also ran through Ezekiel's prophecies and, and has echoes during the text about the building of the temple itself. God, Yahweh, was not limited to the temple or even the ark. Yahweh's power extended far beyond any building. To make an idol of a building, even the great temple of Solomon, was to limit the power of God. God could have power while the ark was in a tent. Why could God, not, why could God still not have power when they were in exile in Babylon? And then the Deuteronomist came to the great promise, the promise of restoration, the promise that, is, that a descendant of David would once again sit on the throne of Judah. It was a bold promise. From where he was sitting, it seemed like an impossible one, but it was one that he believed with all of his heart. As bleak as things might seem in the political situation of his day, with the Supreme Court potentially overturning gay marriage and reproductive rights, with divisions and hatreds abounding in the community, with the very fabric of society frayed, 
that Deuteronomist wrote about the promise of power. It would one day change. A new day would dawn. A descendant of David would once again have power. It had been promised 400 years before David's reign, and the promises of Yahweh were not in vain. As it turned out, this promise in 2 Samuel 7 became one of the central texts of the Hebrew Bible. It was something the Jews would keep coming back to, not just during the exile in Babylon, but in the centuries that followed. It was a text that kept getting repeated and whispered even in the late Second Temple period, when Herod the Great was dead and the Romans were in control of Palestine. The heir of David would save them. The new anointed one would come. The promise of power endured. It's hard to overstate the importance of promise, of this promise, or in fact any true promise. Anyone going through difficult times, from the smallest child to the oldest person alive, can attest to the importance of having the promise of a brighter future. In tough times, it is promise that keeps us going. When a child gets put in time out, what is it that keeps him quiet? The promise that release from time out is coming soon. What keeps the high school student working on homework late at night when all of her friends are on social media or watching Riverdale on Netflix? It's the promise that the studying will pay off with a good grade. When you're doing the drudge work at your job, the kind of work you detest and you keep checking the clock to see when it's done, what keeps you going? The promise that the work will pay off. When you are facing surgery for a knee or a hip and you have hours of physical therapy to do, the kind of difficult physical therapy that leaves you exhausted, what keeps you going? What leads you to do one more set of exercises? It's a promise that the work will pay off after the surgery, and you'll be pain-free. Again and again in times throughout our life, the notion of promise is essential. The promise that things will get better gives us hope. And without hope, we have no power to endure. It's all important. And the more difficult the situation, the more trying it is to your psyche, the more crucial that that promise becomes. Keep repeating it to yourself again and again, just like the Israelites kept repeating the text in 2 Samuel 7. And this promise in 2 Samuel 7 is not simply about a brighter future. The promise of a brighter future is all well and good, but 2 Samuel 7 is about the promise of future power. Nathan's prophecy that he relates to David promises that the house of David will rule forever. They will be in control. Friedrich Nietzsche famously wrote that the will to power is the basic driving force of life. At some level, we all seek to be in control, to be able to effect the outcomes that we desire, to have the ability to direct others as we want. Think about the daydreams you have. What are they? What do you do for escape? Maybe you're someone who, when watching sporting events, dreams of yourself as a star player, the one with all the successes and acclamation. Perhaps you drift off on your own mind to a place where you have unlimited financial resources or are a high-up CEO or elected official. These types of daydreams are common to most of us. And what's at the center of those daydreams? Those examples of wish fulfillment? That will to power. You could argue that the will to power is at the core of why we keep going to watch superhero movies. We've been amazed by how many superhero movies have dominated the cinema in the past ten years. It seems like each, each summer has at least one, if not several, blockbuster superhero movies. And the plot for these movies all seems to be the same. You have an average person, someone who doesn't get much respect in his or her personal life, secretly having amazing powers, both to save others and dictate the course of events. Captain America was a pipsqueak who couldn't get into the military because of his physical limitations. 
then with an experimental drug, he becomes Captain America, the strongest, most agile man in the army. Peter Parker has to watch his uncle die and endures taunts at school. Then he is bitten by a spider and becomes Spider-Man. Batman combines several of these themes. Batman loses his parents, but also has unlimited money and trains to take on the bad guys while maintaining a secret identity. That promise of power keeps us coming back to the theaters because we all dream about it on some level ourselves. You see that? See the draw of that? Does it manifest manifest in your own life? What if those promises don't work out? What if, like the leaders of Israel, you have to wait year after year for the promise of power that never comes? You hold on to that promise for your whole life, only to realize at the end that it's not going to happen. How long can you hold on to hope when the promise doesn't materialize? My mother is someone who suffers from chronic back issues. She's been in pain for years. The last 10 years, the pain has been near continuous. She has seen every specialist in Boston, done physical therapy and acupuncture, had massages, and even tried surgery. Year after year, specialist after specialist, there is very little that can be done. Since she has assiduously avoided painkillers, she has to rely on basic over-the-counter NSAIDs and SIDS, which only do so much. The most recent diagnosis is some form of arthritis brought on by the de- degeneration of the spine over time. At least that's what I think was the most recent diagnosis, but she might have seen more specialists since then. I have to say, it's pained me to see my mother suffer. She puts on a good face. You would hardly ever guess what was going on, but it's there for all of those who love her to see happens to the promise then? How long can she hold on to the promise of something better when there's so little to indicate that it will change? The same thing can happen if you're stuck, if you stick it out at your job and then the hoped for promotion never comes. Day after day you keep repeating the promise to yourself that things will get better, but what if they don't? What if you hold on to the promise that politics will someday change, that your party might finally achieve some of its goals? that have been tantalizingly there for decades. True universal health care, like every other developed country in the world. End to money in politics, or an end to partisan gerrymandering. What happens when those promises don't work out? When your candidates keep losing? When the system keeps on winning? When you're stuck by the waters of Babylon? No open sight. The promise of power, the very promise we see encapsulated in our text for today, can have tremendous power to motivate and maintain hope. But over time, as that promise fades, what happens to that all-important hope? What then? Perhaps you're going through one of those times now, and you can't help but mutter under your breath, what now for me? It's impossible to mention the history of this text as Christians without turning our attention to Jesus. During the time of Jesus, this text was one that people read again and again when they put their hope in a Davidic Messiah. This is the reason why the Messiah had to be from the house and lineage of David. This text, 2 Samuel 7, predicted that someone from David's house would always sit on the throne. This text is the reason why, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowd gathered and cheered for the son of David. This is why Jesus had had to come from Bethlehem, the city of David. It goes back to 2 Samuel 7. People expected to to see the power of this promise, and for Christians, the fulfillment of that promise is in the person of Jesus. Jesus was not the promise that most people expected. Most people wanted to see a new David who had power, the will to power, the type of power that society has always lifted up as central. 
They wanted a new David who expelled the Romans and take over the throne. That was the David they expected and hoped for. And this is where Jesus is so crucial for our interpretation of this text. He turns on its head every expectation that we have of what power should be. In our lives, we expect, we expect power, we are expecting power to be control over others, to get others to do what we want. Power is expected to mean money, health, authority, and honor. But the problem with that type of power is that it's temporary, it can never last. Even the great family fortunes of the world fade away, as does political power. Great athletes age out, only only to be replaced by others and forgotten by most. Our bodies wear out. If the promise of 2 Samuel 7 is going to be a real promise, if it's going to be a promise that can and will be fulfilled, it has to be a promise for a different type of power than the one we expect. Otherwise, the promise of power cannot possibly be forever. It's exactly what Jesus gives us. Jesus shows us power through love, power through humility, power through reaching out to those who have been neglected. Jesus shows us the moral power and inner spiritual strength of living life in union with God. For Christians, the power we should seek is not the power over others, but power alongside others. It is about power that reflects God's shalom, God's peace not power through violence and intimidation. It's a power that's not dependent on human beings, so it's a power that persists and endures, regardless of what happens to us or in our society. I cannot think of a time when 2 Samuel 7 can have more relevance for us. So often we feel powerless in the face of what goes on around us. That is true in the political realm, and it's also true in our personal lives. And yet we are faced with this promise of God, a promise delivered to those in exile, those in need of good news. As Christians, it's up to us to proclaim Jesus' alternative vision of power, Jesus' reinterpretation of 2 Samuel 7. It's up to us to proclaim that the promise has been kept. It endures, despite what's going on around us. We discover Jesus' version of power every time we respond to hate with love. We embrace true power when we build coalitions across differences and especially with those who feel marginalized, both liberals and conservatives, people of all ages and all life circumstances. This is not an easy vision of power to hold on to, with our natural drive for the will to power, and with all the messages we get from media and our culture. And yet it is the central things that Christians can bring to life today for us and for our society. We can say what power is and where enduring power comes from, from finding a connection with the ground of our being, I know we have all experienced it. We need to experience it again. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 is a promise for each of us. The son of David really does sit on the throne. The son of David really does have that power. It's just not the type of power many people expect. But when they discover its enduring value, that kind of power can transform. Hear the promise for yourself? Prophet Nathan here is speaking to you.